This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing the story of Beowulf, who, at 80 years old, decides to dive back into some of his old hobbies of fighting monsters and bragging about fighting monsters. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the Snallygaster from Maryland, whose one weakness is a giant vat of moonshine. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 60C, Unknowable but Certain. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by a really interesting new podcast called Missing Richard Simmons. You might not know this, but Richard Simmons just disappeared from the public eye three years ago, and no one really knows why he left. A filmmaker and friend of his goes on a search for him in this new podcast, and the deeper he digs, the stranger it gets. It's a really cool show. Check it out. Subscribe now to Missing Richard Simmons in Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on the podcast, Beowulf was an epic hero and killed Grendel and his mother, two monsters in modern-day Denmark. He returned home to modern-day Sweden and, by no fault of his own, became king. Then he ruled for 50 years. That's about it. Today is basically a standalone episode. A couple hours earlier, a man who was very recently a slave, as in 10 minutes ago recently, sat huddled in a cave. He had left at first light, making his way to a cave he had passed countless times on his duties. It was by the coast, well hidden on the other side of the forest. It was a grim and foreboding place that few visited and none visited with any degree of enthusiasm. Hidden by some trees and facing the sea, it was practically invisible. His plan was to huddle there until nightfall and then make his way to the ports. He had stolen enough from his master to hopefully buy passage on the next ship south and, if that failed, he would become a stowaway. He was going to cross the waters and go home. He heard the waves crashing against the cliff outside and while sitting in a damp, chilly cave wasn't fun it wasn't slavery so it was a net gain he was getting hit by droplets of water though and decided to move toward the back of the cave except as he rested on the dry stone at the back of the cave he didn't stop leaning backwards until he hit his head on the rocks confused he found himself in a hallway he leapt to his feet and looked at what he thought was the back of the cave it wasn't a jagged rock like everything else in the light from the outside he could see that it was a smooth stone, covered in strange, mystical markings. The man didn't know this, but it was a door, built by an ancient race of creatures that had disappeared centuries ago. It would have been impenetrable if they had remembered to shut it. That's why the former slave didn't need to speak friend and enter. Of course, the man didn't know any of this. All he knew was that he was bored, and that there was a cool-looking door that led to a deeper part of the cave. And, down in the darkness... He thought he heard breathing, like the sound of a bellows. As he strained and looked down the winding path, he thought that he had a few more hours to kill before nightfall. He might as well follow the sound of breathing down into the unknown. As he carried a torch down the hallway, the strange symbols were all around him. And soon, the hallway opened up into a larger room. It was packed to the brim with treasure, piles and piles and piles of gold. There were legendary weapons everywhere, gold banners hanging from the walls. Basically, if someone installed a diving board, it would be a medieval version of Scrooge McDuck's vault. The former slave couldn't quite see the center of the vast cavern, but 
Behind what looked like a heap of black iron, there was a faint glow. And that's where the sound of the bellows was coming from. The man was confused. Was there someone living down there? But he shrugged, thinking, Hey, what harm could it do except all the harm to go say hi to whoever or whatever lived in a creepy cave in the scary regions of the middle of nowhere? He took one step and accidentally kicked something on the ground. It bounced a couple of feet and rolled to a stop. Loudly, the man looked down. It was a jeweled chalice, and the sound of it skipping across the stone floor was still reverberating around the cavern. Not quite realizing the chaos he had unleashed upon the world with that misplaced step, the man looked in front of him to see that black iron lump slowly uncoil. He squinted. Houses generally don't do that. He was straining to think that it might not be a house at all when he saw the black, leathery wings, the thick, scaled tail, and the smoke emanating from its glowing nostrils. It was no house at all. It was a dragon, and it was waking up. Except it wasn't, but the man didn't know that. He knew that he had stumbled into a dragon's lair, and that he did not escape slavery today to be eaten by a dragon. He backed up toward the door, but then he saw the chalice. A jeweled, solid gold chalice could go a long, long way toward putting his life back together when he got back home. Worst case scenario, it could pay off anyone who caught him. He steeled himself, lunged for the chalice, and then ran as fast as he could back down the stone hallway. He splashed through the jagged rocks on the shore and ran up the turf on the hill toward the forest. He wasn't thinking about anything but putting as much distance between him and the dragon as possible. He wasn't thinking about the fairy he had planned to hire, the one that he was now running in the opposite direction of, and he certainly wasn't thinking about the men out looking for him until he turned a corner in the forest and ran right into them, and they were not happy. They were from the man's once and future master, and they did not like having to spend a day out looking for a former slave. They grabbed him by his shirt and threw him onto the cart to take him back. The slave begged and pleaded. They had to leave. Everyone had to leave. He screamed it from the cart to everyone as they passed. A dragon was coming, maybe. Really, there was a dragon under the hill right over there. He was totally serious. Why wouldn't anyone believe him? They rooted through his things when they made it back to his master's farm. And they found the jeweled chalice. And they had some questions. Unfortunately, those would have to wait. Because the village was on fire. They went outside to see a dragon filling the sky, setting everything in its path ablaze. Back in the cave, the dragon had rolled over when the man left, not really waking up, but kind of just half opening his eyes. It had only been asleep for about 300 years, and he just needed another half a millennia or so. He knew it wasn't time to wake up yet, Still, as he laid atop his pile of gold, which is basically a dragon mattress, he couldn't get comfortable. There was something in the room that just felt off. An hour or so later, and he was just staring up at the ceiling. If he was up, he was up. He rolled over and blew his fire breath on the torches, hanging by the walls, and they came to life. The dragon sat up. He was not happy about any of this. Then he looked around and, yeah, something was off about this room. He rolled over and grabbed his ledger, pulling out his dragon glasses and thumbed through and checked things off the inventory until he found it. Or didn't find it. The chalice. It was gone. That was the clanging the dragon had heard. He thought he had dreamed he was eating a chef. He liked that chalice too. It really tied the treasure hoard together. The dragon began snorting fire in his rage. How could he have a treasure hoard without a jeweled chalice? Without one, it 
wasn't really a treasure hoard at all, just a priceless pile of gold that he slept on. The ground shook as he rose to his feet. The thief couldn't have gotten far. The dragon would burn everything and eat everyone in his path until he got his chalice back. He lumbered out of the cave, gaining speed as he went down the hall. When he reached the mouth of the cave, he leapt and spread his black wings, taking flight and heading for the first people that he saw. Okay, so we've seen some dragons on this podcast before, and I should let you know what type this one is. His well-organized treasure hoard is an exaggeration on my part. He's one of the unthinking beast variety of dragons, like the Lampton Worm and the dragons that Yvain and Ragnar fought. He's not like the dragons that can hold an intelligent conversation before eating you, like Fafnir. This is actually one of the first fire-breathing dragons in folklore, and while that's extremely common today, it wasn't common in mythology and folklore. The dragons seemed to be mainly extremely poisonous. This dragon had wings and legs, and if this story sounds a lot like Smog from The Hobbit, well, we know Tolkien was very familiar with the story of Beowulf. He actually has a translation of the story out that was published posthumously. And while we can't say definitively that the story of a thief awakening a fire-breathing dragon sleeping on a treasure pile under a hill inspired the story of a thief awakening a fire-breathing dragon sleeping on a treasure pile underneath a lonely mountain, it seems like a pretty good fit. Back to Beowulf, the king put his hand on the black beams of what was left of his mead hall, his home. They were still removing smoldering remains, and Beowulf ran his hands over the charred, ashen remnant. It was a dragon in this land, in his land. Now, for years, the Geats had been at peace with their many, many enemies. Beowulf had been their king and leader. He had kept the wolves at bay, and whether it was punching guys to death, wrestling guys to death, or watching others punch and wrestle guys to death, Beowulf had had a full and happy life. In fact, we're told Beowulf hardly used iron weapons. Not out of some weird principle, like the reason Batman doesn't use guns, but because iron weapons couldn't handle the strength of his blows. Any sword he used shattered. Yeah, why doesn't Beowulf handle swords? Because swords can't handle Beowulf. I guess he was basically the first Chuck Norris. Anyway, there was a dragon and Beowulf shook. He was over 80 years old. To be honest, he thought his monster fighting days were behind him. Could he do this? Was he up to the task? Would this be his final battle? He heard his men enter the meat hall though it was really just them walking out to the ashes of the meat hall. The dragon was pretty thorough. The men said they found something, and pulled out a jeweled chalice. It came from one of the farmers. His slave had escaped that morning, and was screaming about the dragon. And that was only noteworthy, because he was screaming about the dragon before it attacked. Looking at the burned-out husk of his meat hall, Beowulf nodded, and they said they would go see this thief. The former slave was scared, but no more than everyone else now. Beowulf told him that the dragon had disappeared again, and they think he went back to his barrow. Did the slave know where it was? The slave did. He said it was in the cave looking out in the ocean, just past the forest. It's hidden from the road. Beowulf said that his directions weren't exactly specific, but thank you. Also, you're coming with us. We'll see what the team finds, as well as Beowulf's extremely impractical dragon fight, right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Stamps.com, where you can buy and print official US postage for any letter or package. Okay, so as you all may know, we started a Myths and Legends store a few months ago, and let me just say that we are only able to have the store 
and fulfill the orders ourselves because of Stamps.com. If you've ordered anything from us, you've seen the Stamps.com logo on the shipping label. We've been using it for months, and it syncs perfectly with our e-commerce site, and it takes all the thought and stress out of shipping items across the world. This is especially true when it comes to shipping internationally. It fills out the long, complicated customs forms, so you don't have to wait in line to do so at the post office. For real, Stamps.com has made our lives immeasurably easier. Oh yeah, and you can print stamps too. Right now, you can use the code LEGENDS for the special offer of a four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait, go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in LEGENDS. That's Stamps.com, code LEGENDS. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron, delivering easy-to-follow recipes with fresh ingredients right to your door. The average wait time at a restaurant is 23 minutes, and that doesn't count waiting for the food, getting to the restaurant, or, in our case, getting shoes on a two-year-old who very much does not want to put on shoes. I've never had a Blue Apron meal take longer than 40 minutes to make. They've always been fun. You can do it as a family and sit down to an awesome, home-cooked meal before you even have your table at a restaurant. Not only that, but you know what's in it. And, at less than $10 per person per meal, it was probably cheaper than going out anyway. Some of the February meals are cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, udon noodle soup with miso and soft-boiled eggs, roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad, and crispy barramundi with quinoa and roasted carrot salad. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com legends. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. All right, now back to the show. It wasn't a long trip, but the slave walked alongside Beowulf and 11 of the greatest warriors of the kingdom. The slave had a sword, but he didn't really know how to use it. And if he saw the dragon again, his only plan was wetting himself and then maybe fainting. Meanwhile, here he was next to Beowulf, the Beowulf, and his 11 warrior buddies as they went to fight a dragon. It was early afternoon when they emerged from the dark forest to see a hill. The slave told them that the dragon was under there. Beowulf and his men inspected the cave and heard the breathing inside, like a bellows. The dragon had gone back to sleep. Looking down into the faintly glowing darkness, Beowulf felt like he couldn't breathe. He turned from the door and ran, pushing past his epic warrior buddies. Outside, he climbed the hill above the dragon's lair and just sat down on the soft turf. He looked down on the ocean, miles out to sea. Every time he had fought monsters or punched way too many guys to death in the past, He'd been excited. Now, though, he was terrified, which was a new experience for Beowulf. He didn't know how he knew this, but if he fought this dragon, it would be the end for him. Okay, so the version I'm using, the one translated by the Irish poet Seamus Heaney, is amazing. And I cannot outdo someone who has won the Nobel Prize for Literature. I was actually a huge fan of Heaney's work even before Beowulf. I studied poetry in college. Yes, really. Anyway, I can't begin to add to his work so I'll just quote it. He wished good luck to the Geats who had shared his hearth in gold. He was sad at heart, unsettled, yet ready. Sensing his death, 
His fate hovered near, unknowable but certain. That last line kind of gives me chills because it's kind of true of all of us. One day, our fate will hover near, unknowable but certain. We never know what day will be our last. That being said, if there's a day on which you're going to fight a fire-breathing dragon, that one stands a better chance of most than being your last. And that's what Beowulf was grappling with. He knew, down to his bones, that to fight this dragon and die here was his fate. He had lived his whole life defending his people, and this dragon had been here the whole time, sleeping, waiting for Beowulf. The dragon here was the embodiment of unavoidable, unrelenting fate. And now, that day was here. Beowulf would die so that his people could live. Beowulf stood. His body was aged, but strong. His few calloused hands tired, but they could complete this one last task. He made his way down to the barrow. Beowulf addressed his twelve companions, saying that he would face the dragon alone. It would be a test for him from God, and the Almighty would give him success or failure. His warriors just said, Oh no, we can't fight a fire-breathing monster with you? Oh man, we were really looking forward to that. So bummed. 80-year-old Beowulf, you get to have all the fun. Beowulf narrowed his eyes. Anyway, he said, he was fighting a dragon, and he would do so in just his chainmail and with a shield. And he would do so on one condition. If the dragon would fight him outside, on a hill, overlooking the sea. And once he planted his shield, he wouldn't shift a foot and retreat. He would stand and face his fate. This fight was his, and his alone, unless he died, in which case it was immediately all of their fights. Okay, so I'm going to back up and get super nerdy with this. When it comes to dragon fighting, one, don't. It's a really mixed bag in terms of the outcome. Sigurd got the ring that killed him, Hercules got the poison that set him on fire, John Lambton cursed his entire line, and Cadmus actually became a dragon. I think so far it really only worked out for Yvain. But then again, everything worked out for Yvain. Seriously, the guy's story was just him falling backwards into success. And anything bad that happened to him, happened to him because he was just a selfish jerk. Anyway, so avoid dragon fighting at all costs. But if you do have to fight a dragon, fight him in the cave. It eliminates the possibility of him just spraying you with fire from the air. And the cramped room can kind of limit his movements, taking away his size advantage. But I've killed zero monsters in my life. So who am I to lecture Beowulf? Besides, if Beowulf fought the dragon in the cave, how would anyone know how awesome Beowulf was? And that was like the whole reason Beowulf did anything. He took up his shield, donned his gold helmet, and nodded at his warriors. Everyone knew it. This was goodbye. They stood near the forest and watched as Beowulf screamed a challenge to the dragon down into the cave, saying that he had the jeweled chalice and demanding that the dragon fight him. Beowulf heard a rumbling and ran up to the top of the hill. The dragon exploded out of the cave and flapped up until he landed on the hill in front of Beowulf. Beowulf saw it, smiled, and slammed his long iron shield down on the ground. Here he was, and here he would remain. The dragon didn't wait and blasted Beowulf's shield with its fire breath, but Beowulf only laughed. The shield held. He began to walk forward, flames hitting his shield. The issue? His iron shield was absorbing all the heat of the fire breath, and the flames didn't stop there. Coming around the edges and licking his chainmail and helmet, Beowulf started to see the issue of wearing all metal with a metal shield to go fight a creature with fire breath. Or, well, more accurately, he began to feel the massive oversight. And it was hot. Soon, his shield was too hot to hold. 
It was heating his armor, and he could feel his skin begin to burn underneath. When he couldn't hold it any longer, he flung it at the dragon, hitting the monster in the face. The dragon shook its head. Now it was mad. It began running at Beowulf. Beowulf could see that he was once again in a tricky spot. So this is where Beowulf somehow gets a sword. Let's just say that one of his men saw his predicament and tossed him a sword. Because at the beginning of the fight, he was boasting about how he was going to take it on with just a shield. He pulled the sword from the scabbard, just as the dragon, teeth out, was about to bite him. Beowulf turned the sword and stabbed downward. Except that, as the sword connected with the dragon, it broke into four pieces, leaving Beowulf with nothing but the hilt. Remember that whole thing about Beowulf being too strong to be able to use swords? Let's just say that this was that. The octogenarian Beowulf looked square into the dragon's eyes and chuckled nervously, holding his broken sword, saying, Okay, so we should talk. The dragon, not appreciating having a shield thrown in its face and a sword broken on its head, did not want to talk and blasted Beowulf in his iron-ringed chest with its molten venom. Beowulf, who had already been stopped and dropped by the dragon, rolled in his flaming clothes to put out the blaze. One of his men, named Wilaf, helped him to his feet as the dragon roared and spewed fire into the sky. Wilaf turned to Beowulf, his king, and said that Beowulf wasn't alone. He had been a good king and a better friend to his people over the years, and his best and bravest would not abandon him in his time of need. Right, guys? He turned and saw Beowulf's best and bravest abandoning him in his time of need. Wilaf yelled after them, Guys, come on, after everything Beowulf has done for us, and Wilaf went on to describe for several lines just how awesome Beowulf had been to them. That's nice, we're still running away. The men yelled back as they disappeared into the forest. Wilaf turned to the still smoking Beowulf and handed him a dagger, saying, I may have literally never been in a battle before in my life, but I will not abandon you on this day, my king. Beowulf, through wincing, said, Wait, you've never been in a battle before? But he was barely allowed to finish that sentence. The dragon who has been here the whole time, remember, roared. Beowulf turned to Wilaf, inspected the dagger, and put it away. He just said, Sword. Wilaf saw his king standing tall. Even though he was aged and bloody, and probably didn't have his eyebrows because of the fire, Beowulf looked every bit the warrior that had killed the legendary Grendel, and Wilaf gave him his sword. Beowulf smiled and ran forward, yelling a battle cry. When he got close, the dragon bit down at him, but Beowulf ducked and rolled in between the dragon's legs until the hero was right next to the dragon's unprotected underbelly. Beowulf raised his sword and struck with as much force as he could muster, and his sword broke again. Wait, seriously, Beowulf said, looking at his sword? Come on! The dragon felt it, though, and whipped its head around to grab Beowulf's body with its teeth. Beowulf, though he was very badly burned, wasn't going to give up. He grabbed the dragon's teeth pushed, keeping the mouth from crushing him. The next couple of things happened simultaneously. Wilaf saw his king snatched up by the dragon, and he saw Beowulf straining in the dragon's mouth against the thing's bite. The octogenarian was strong, but no one was that strong. He would fail and fall. Wilaf had to do something. He looked at the dragon, and then he saw the dragon's underbelly. Beowulf was right to attack it. It was a different color than the rest of the monster and didn't appear to have the same iron-like scales. Also, it looked like Beowulf's hit on the dragon actually did something. On its belly, there was a small cut that was sputtering with a lava-like poison. The dragon was distracted with trying to eat Beowulf. Wilaf steeled himself and drew a sword. Back up with Beowulf, the dragon was getting really, 
really tired of this. His nap had been cut short by a few hundred years, and he just wanted to get his jeweled chalice and get back to his treasure hoard after he killed this guy in his mouth. But the old man was not making it easy. The dragon then remembered that he had fire breath. Beowulf, in the thing's mouth, and keeping the teeth from coming down, heard the fire in the depths of the beast, and saw the glow with precisely zero time to do anything about it. He was hit full on by fire breath, and the teeth came down hard on the hero. The chainmail kept the teeth from impaling Beowulf, but the force was crushing his bones. That would have been it for him, if not for Wilaf. Remembering the story of Sigurd and the dragon, Wilaf ran to the monster's belly and stabbed it. Flames licked out, and it was unbearably hot, but the sword pierced it. The sword turned orange with heat as Wilaf ran the blade down the length of the monster's belly. Flames and molten poison spilling out of the monster's wound, it cut the fire breath short after only a few seconds, and the dragon bellowed out in pain, releasing Beowulf. In an instant, Beowulf knew exactly what to do. He was burned and crushed and dying, but he could do this one last thing. With all he had left, he took the dagger out and drove it upwards, through the dragon's mouth and into its head. He kept digging until he felt the dragon's mouth go slack. He held onto his dagger as they both fell, the dragon dead and Beowulf dying. Beowulf rolled out of the dragon's mouth when they hit the ground and just laid there. Wilaf threw his sword down and ran to the king, and an eerie quiet permeated the coast. When Wilaf got there, Beowulf was nearly finished pulling himself to the top of the hill and propping himself up on a rock so that he could see the ocean. Beowulf bade Wilaf sit next to him, and together they looked on the ocean in silence for a long while. Finally, Beowulf spoke. His breathing was labored, but he told Wilaf that he was incredibly grateful for his help killing the dragon. Now was the time Beowulf would have given his armor to his son, but he didn't have a son, only Wilaf, the one man who didn't abandon him. Wilaf would be king after Beowulf, but now there was just one request Beowulf had of Wilaf. Wilaf drew closer and nodded. Beowulf asked Wilaf to go to the dragon's hoard and pull out all the best treasure and bring it here and put it on the grass in front of Beowulf so Beowulf could look at the awesome treasure as he died. Wilaf cocked his head. That seems to run counter to Beowulf's professed Christian faith, but far be it from him to refuse the request of a dying man, who just made him king. When Wilaf returned, staggering under the weight of the treasure, he spilled all of it on the ground before Beowulf, who just sat admiring it. Beowulf said that, because of his faith, his treasure was in heaven, and also right in front of his face. I mean, look at all this gold. If Beowulf had to choose... Stabbing a dragon in the head and staring at all the dragon's gold while he died was definitely in his top three ways to go. Also, he turned to Wheelof, his speech still weak. When you tell the story, be sure to emphasize me bravely impaling the dragon from inside its mouth. Feel free to include yourself with the assist down there scratching at its belly or whatever you did. Wheelof looked at his burned hand and at the dragon's entrails spilling out on the grass from a wound that definitely would have killed it had it not been distracted enough for Beowulf to stab it. Yeah, okay, Wilaf said. Oh, and another thing Beowulf said. Try to work into any oral traditions and subsequent written versions of the story that my swords break all the time because I'm just so strong that not even metal can withstand my Thor-like strikes. That's really specific, but okay, Wilaf said. Beowulf looked down the sea, sighed, and said, I've done a good thing for my people in dying to get them all this awesome treasure, even though I'll be dead, and unable to hold back the armies of our enemies with my reputation. And now our people have the dragon's treasure to make it all the more enticing to invade. 
and I'm leaving a man in charge with virtually no experience as either a warrior or a king. Yep, I've done a good thing here today. He gave Wheeloff the orders that he be put in a barrow, overlooking the sea after his funeral. Beowulf's breathing grew shallow, and it became harder and harder to speak. He told Wheeloff that there wasn't any time to peel the chainmail from his body, but he gave the young man his gilded helmet and his collar and told him to use that and his new throne well. He would lead their people. Beowulf became serious and looked down at the waves. He started talking about fate, how fate had carried all of his ancestors away, the brave highborn clan, to their final doom. Now, he must follow them. With that, Beowulf died. The warriors popped their heads out from the forest and, seeing the dragon dead, all jogged out. Oh wait, what? Is the fight over? Aw oh, man, we were just going back to get more weapons. We were totally going to help out. Bummer. Well, don't worry, we'll get it next time. And this is me, Jason. Just kidding. They were all deeply, deeply ashamed. The black smoke rose into the air, and the people wailed at Beowulf's cremation. For his self-professed very few faults, Beowulf had been a strong, good king. He had taken Hrothgar's words to heart. Well, not the ones about not trusting solely in his own strength, or the ones about treasure. Anyway, he had been a great ruler, and his people had loved him. He had been just, but moreover, he had been strong. They didn't know this Wheelof, the thane turned king, and wagered that the enemies of the Geats would not know him either. Without Beowulf, the Geats would be thrown back into a world of chaos, war, and death. And here they sat, with their enemies watching, the darkness encroaching on Geatland, knowing that, try as they might, they would suffer and fall. That's actually how Beowulf ends. It's a dark ending. J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, said that the poem isn't really an epic, but an elegy. With the hero gone, the poem basically says that the enemies of the Geats will invade. There's a lot of history behind this, and it moves well past my expertise. But we do know that the historical Geats survived the time after Beowulf died, and eventually, after the Viking Age, the Swedes and the Geats became one unified kingdom. Okay, so what does it all mean? Well, that's a big question, and one I won't really be diving into. In Beowulf, there are themes of youth versus age, our role in a changing world, the inevitability of fate and death. There are people that look at the historical aspects of the poem and disregard the fantasy elements, and there are people that read the poem as literature and set aside the historical elements. It's been a popular work of world literature for centuries, so much so that Tolkien said 80 years ago that it was buried under a mountain of scholarly works about it before helping to redirect that work, focusing on the monsters in the poem, and making that mountain all the higher. Next time, finally, is the Seal of Solomon, and the Dragon of the North. It took me long enough to get it right, but I hope you like it. There's an episode of Career Day out this week, and I'll get right to the Creature of the Week, but I added a clip of the new Career Day episode after the credits today. Carissa talks to Rahan, a junior doctor in the UK. You can find it on iTunes at itunes.careerdayshow.com or by searching for Career Day by Carissa Weiser wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Snallygaster, a legendary monster from Frederick County in Northern Maryland in the United States. Thanks to Doug Grove for letting me know about this creature. It's a half bird, half lizard, half octopus. Well, 
I've only found in one place that it's part octopus, with tentacles hanging down, but I really wanted to throw in that man-bear pig illusion. Really, it's usually just half lizard, half bird, with massive wings, a sharp, steel-like barbed beak, and steel claws, like hooks. They suspect that the monster originated with German immigrants in the 1730s, when the community was being terrorized by an unseen monster. They named it the Quick Ghost, that, in German, being Schnellergeist, which turned into Snallagaster. Stories of it really took off in 1909, when newspaper reports from West Virginia came to Frederick County, telling the story of a monster with a screech like a train whistle, and that it was there in Maryland, laying eggs. With it being 1909, and train whistles being everywhere, things kind of got carried away, until, allegedly, even President Theodore Roosevelt debated canceling his safari trip in Africa to hunt the Snallagaster. Apparently, the Middletown Valley Register ran stories for a month, until the beast was definitely spotted and totally run off by a group of men. And, for about 20 years, things were quiet, until one of the eggs hatched. Baby Snallagaster, who was no longer a baby, was seen flying over Maryland, and was sighted for a month. This was during Prohibition, and if you're not familiar with American history, it's a weird little 13-year period in the 1920s and early 30s, where there was a constitutional ban on alcohol in the US. Of course, this just pushed the industry elsewhere, like illegal distilleries. When the Snellagester happened upon one of these distilleries, it smelled the vapors, passed out, and drowned in a massive vat of moonshine. You would think we'd have the body, right? Well, unfortunately, the creature drowned right before the Hagerstown Prohibition agents blew up the still. It's suspected that the rumor was started by the bootleggers to keep people out of the woods, because you really want to avoid the Snallagaster, never mind the many, many illegal distilleries. If you want to avoid the Snallagaster, they are apparently afraid of seven-sided stars, so just have those hanging around, or just keep a giant open vat of moonshine in your backyard, because hey, it worked once. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. Also, real quickly, this podcast is my full-time job, and you've probably noticed, but it's supported in part by advertisers, and to keep doing that, I need your help. If you have time, and would like to help out the show and me immensely, please go to podsurvey.com myths, and take a quick, anonymous survey, so we can have the right types of ads in the show, and... Once you've completed the survey, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash myths, M-Y-T-H-S. Thank you so much for your help. All right, that's it. Stay tuned for an excerpt from this week's episode of Career Day. That's coming right up. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. So in a, in a GP, you get your own office and your own desk, and you get those spinny chairs, and that's really all I want. <laughs> Is. And under computer systems that they use, they've all got a little chat function, so you can just chat with the receptionist and ask for tea. And that sounds like a perfect. That is the life. Get my own office, a spinny chair, and just get to chat to people all day and drink tea. Perfect. I'm Carissa Weiser. Welcome to Career Day. This is a podcast where I talk with strangers all around the world about their life, identity sense of belonging, and how career fits into that picture. Today, I'm sharing the story of Rahan, whose quest for the perfect chair led to the most remarkable discoveries about himself and what matters most. Hi, I'm Rahan, and uh, I'm a junior doctor. 